he has a very particular view of faith as being future oriented. He speaks about God calling us from the future. Uh, there is a future that we believe is possible and God somehow communicates that to us. And then we have a responsibility in reflection of that call to do our part. And when he talks about, you know, Jewish responsibility and the responsibility to, to act, responsibility was one of his key notions. I think it stands at odds with some people in the tradition who talk about hishtadlut almost as a symbolic gesture that really God will do it for us, but we need to kind of make it look as if we're, we're playing a part. It seems to me that Rabbi Sachs stands on, at a different uh, place on the Jewish philosophical map saying, no, no, the call to responsibility is very real. God has put us in a situation where the completion of our salvation depends upon our activity. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. On November 14th, I released an episode of The Orthodox Conundrum, a panel discussion dealing with Rabbi Jonathan Saxatzal's Life, Leadership, and Legacy. Today, I'm excited and honored to release a sequel to that episode as we talk about the thought and philosophy of Rabbi Sachs. My guests today are Dr. Tanya White and Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens. We'll address many important issues, including Rabbi Sachs' originality, his idea of covenant, the importance of individual responsibility, for whom he was writing, the controversy around his book, The Dignity of Difference, and whether he clarified or retracted its most controversial assertion, how communitarianism affected his thinking, his response to fundamentalism, whether he was a religious pluralist, how he dealt with biblical criticism, what he said when our sense of morality and our understanding of science seemed to contradict ideas in the Torah, and more. Before we begin the conversation, please remember to share this podcast, rate The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. Thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffeehouse podcasts, merch, and more. On Friday, I posted a shear on Patreon that I gave in Jerusalem entitled Marital Sex, What is Allowed and What Isn't, and it and lots of additional bonus material are available on Patreon. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, everyone knows that the market for podcasts is growing every day and it's only going to get bigger. If you listen to this podcast, then you definitely have opinions. And if you have opinions or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds or thousands of captivated listeners, you have to have a podcast. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcasts.com to learn how we can help you make a high-quality, effective, and entertaining podcast. Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens is an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Haifa. His academic publications cover many areas, including the works of Bertrand Russell, the philosophy of fiction, metaphysics, and the philosophy of religion. In addition to his academic work, he has studied in numerous yeshivot in Israel and received rabbinical ordination from Harav Zalman Nechemi Goldberg Zatzal. His books include The Principles of Judaism, Philosophy of Religion, The Basics, and most recently, A Guide for the Jewish Undecided. Dr. Tanya White is an international lecturer, writer, and educator with a focus on Tanakh and contemporary Jewish thought. 
She is senior lecturer at Matan Women's Institute for Torah Studies and teaches at other adult education institutions. Tanya holds a doctorate in Jewish philosophy from Bar Ilan University. A collection of her articles, blogs, and published material can be viewed on her blog page, tanyawhite.org. Dr. Tanya White and Rabbi Dr. Samuel Liebens, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Pleasure. Okay, Great sure. to be with you. Before we begin our discussion of Rabbi Sachs and his thought, I'd like to ask each of you to briefly present your academic background and how you got interested specifically in the thought of Rabbi Sachs. Dr. White, let's begin with you. Well, I don't think it was a particular point. I grew up with Rabbi Sachs when I was a Chani Kham Bnei Akiva. He used to come and speak to us in the Bayit, which was like the central kind of place where Bnei Akiva was. Um, he was really, it wasn't even that I could say or point to a particular time. He just really was such an integral part of our lives in, in England, in London at the time. Um, and then when I went to university, I remember very clearly he had a whole series of lectures he gave in the city at the time and I remember going after 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 university to hear those lectures every time he bought a book out I bought it I read it I don't think I truly understood it uh, at the time as a 17 18 19 year old and now looking back I realized that I certainly didn't grasp every element of the book when I was younger but but he certainly accompanied me I would say both on my personal and in intellectual trajectory. Um, I met with him on numerous occasions. He directed me, channeled me towards certain things. Uh, before I started my doctorate, he early on before I made Aliyah, I met with him in his home and he really kind of channeled me towards reading Rabbi Yitz Greenberg at the time. Um, and then when I many years later decided to start to embark on my doctorate, I, I had a long conversation with him by phone at that point I was living in Israel. Um, and he encouraged me to do the doctorate at that point, even though it was a challenging point personally in my life. And then um, I chose Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, who he had encouraged me to read at the time. So he was very, he's very much an integral part of my life, obviously through his books and his writings and his ideas, but also in, a, in quite a personal way. Tanya, what do you mean he asked you to choose Rabbi Yitz Greenberg? What do you mean he choose didn't. Him? He, I had done, I had, when I had met with him, I'd written my master's thesis on Emil Fackenheim, who's a post-Holocaust theologian. Um, and, and I was speaking to him at length about it. And I spoke to him that in the future, at some point, I'd like to write a doctorate. And he asked me after I had said that, have you ever re read the thought of Rabbi Yitz Greenberg? And I said, yeah, I've encountered Rabbi Yitz Greenberg's post-Holocaust thought, but I haven't really engaged with it at a serious level. And he said to me, I really, I'm not going to say here publicly what he said to me, because I, I, it's a little controversial, but he said to me, uh, he really encouraged me to read Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. Um, and funny enough, when I picked up Rabbi Yitz Greenberg's reading after the meeting with him, it spoke to me at a very, very deep level of his, his notion of dialectical faith, which is this idea that we swing between faith and non-faith after the Holocaust spoke to me because of my experiences with my grandfather who was a Holocaust survivor. Um, and that really got me to read a lot more of Rabbi Yitz Greenberg. Eventually, many, many years later, when I came to writing the doctorate, um, I met with Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, and, and that's what kind of pushed me towards writing it on his post-Holocaust, post-modern, the interface between his post-Holocaust and post-modern thought. Thank you very much. Okay, Rabbi Dr. Sam Liebens, how about you? In, in some ways, a similar story, in so, some ways a bit different. Uh, um, again, growing up in England, uh, as someone interested in philosophy and thought, and, and was also religious. Um, Rabbi Sachs was a massive intellectual example and spiritual example, role model for, for people growing up in, in England in, in, in orthodoxy, especially in a more kind of thinking orthodoxy. 
I've spoken publicly about the fact that when I was a teenager in, in yeshiva uh, in Israel between high school and university, it was actually at a difficult time for him because it was when the controversy around the dignity of difference had kind of hit his career and, and, and the world. Uh, but I reached out to him in my own kind of uh, crisis of faith uh, during uh, yeshiva. And he, he emailed me back at that time. He didn't really know me personally, but that was the beginning of a correspondence that, that turned into a personal relationship. I studied philosophy at university. And uh, unlike Tanya's career, um, my research choices weren't consciously um, shaped by my uh, admiration for, for Rabbi Sachs. I did talk to him at times about reconciling certain things I was learning as a philosopher and and. Um, and, and my Jewish faith, but I, I followed a, a, my own kind of path intellectually, and, and I wrote a, a PhD about Bertrand Russell and the philosophy of language, areas that that were close to, but not central to, to Rav, Rav Sachs's concerns. Uh, I was just, I would say, an academic philosopher, and Rabbi Sachs was, was my rabbi and mentor. But I, I would say that in later years, I moved into philosophy of religion, um, and it was then that I realized, because like Tanya, I bought all of his books, read all of his books as they were coming out. I realized the extent to which my religious outlook had been shaped by Rabbi Sachs when I, you know, when I would came back to these things professionally to start writing philosophy of religion and, and therefore re revisiting some of these books. I'm like, oh, I didn't. Yeah, I, I've, I've been thinking this for years. I didn't realize I got that from Rabbi Sachs. I got this from Rabbi Sachs. He, he, he had shaped me very greatly. And and. Um, Finally, since his passing, I've taken it upon myself, I think, to write more uh, directly about some of the things that Rabbi Sachs has um, written. I don't know, if, is that something that you've, uh, well, I'm, I'm not the interviewer, but Tanya, is that something you've also felt that since his passing, you're... No you're, question. You're, no question. Yeah. I think, firstly, I'm teaching two intense courses this year, which are actually, it's kind of their new paradigm for Matan, where they're kind of... Um, they're quite serious, almost verging on university type courses where the it's limited numbers in the class and the participants have to commit to reading Rabbi, to reading Rabbi Sachs's books. Uh, last year we did it general philosophy, this year we're specific, specifically doing Rabbi Sachs's books and they have to commit to reading the books in the reading class and then we come back and we discuss them. And I have to be honest, for me, listen, I've, I've read his books many times, but to go back and read them and really unpack them from the perspective of someone who's now post-doctorate, post, you know, kind of developed, I guess, more intellectually. It's been really enlightening. And I think I've also noticed things that I wouldn't have noticed previously. And I don't think I would have engaged that much and that deeply in Rabbi Sachs's thought had he still been alive. So yeah, I, I totally identify with that, Sam. Interesting. Well, Sam, I'm glad you mentioned the dignity of difference. We're going to get back to that soon. Obviously, that's a very important piece of understanding his thought. Before that, almost as a way of introduction into discussing his thought specifically, Sam, can you tell me, in your opinion, in what way was Rabbi Sachs an original thinker, and in what way was he more transmitting classic Torah ideas in his own language, to use different terms? Where is his originality? Where does it lie? In what ways is his thought part of an ongoing tradition, and in what ways is it a chidush? Is it something which is... A new idea. I have some anticipation about what Dr. White might say about what Tanya might say about this <laughs> to do with covenant. I'll steer clear of covenant. Uh, uh, um, I, yeah, I was going to say that for, for something later on, but yeah, no, uh, it's fine. But yeah, okay, that's okay. definitely that's definitely you know you already know what I think. Yeah. You're wetting my um, appetite. <laughs> but um, 
look, it's it's kind of an unfair question because it, it's it's actually very difficult to define uh, clearly what originality is and what it means to be original within the confines of an orthodox faith, which he was deeply committed to. And therefore, there's a sense in which we believe in, as 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 Orthodox Jews, and Rabbi Sachs speaks about this a lot. In an early piece in um, in an Orthodox Forum book on um, on rabbinic authority, he has an article there about the nature of halacha. And there's a sense in which we think of of that well, the Torah is eternal, and there's a sense in which it's unchanging. But there's also a sense, of course, in which because the world around us is changing so rapidly, the ways in which the Torah is applied to the world around us uh, uh, has to change as rapidly as the world does. So a great part of rabbinic ingenuity is just about finding a way to articulate uh, ancient ideas, hopefully kind of unchanging ideals uh, um, and the like, uh, into a modern vernacular. Uh, and into and into ways that resonate uh, uh, with the way that society and culture is is currently calibrated, and in, in that respect, he was deeply original because he you know he was par excellence a spokesperson for traditional Judaism in a modern age. He had a gift for finding um, an idiom, a way of speaking, a symbolic landscape even that would resonate uh, uh, with people today. But that's that isn't really perhaps the originality you meant. You meant like, you know, there's some new ideas that no one had thought before. And I think in that respect, there there are a constellation of ideas that he may be sharpened in a particular way that could have been uh, that could be understood in in other ways. Uh, For example, he has a very particular view of faith as being future oriented. He speaks about God calling us from the future. Uh, there is a future that we believe is possible and God somehow communicates that to us. And then we have a responsibility in reflection of that call to do our part. And when he talks about, you know, Jewish responsibility and the responsibility to, to act, responsibility was one of his key notions. I think it stands at odds with some people in the tradition who talk about Hishtadlut almost as a symbolic gesture. That really God will do it for us, but we need to kind of make it look as if we're te- we're playing a part. And there is such a view in the tradition, you know, this idea that uh, the the Leviim and the Kohanim they didn't really have to lift; they could they they weren't strong enough physically to lift the kalim of the tabernacle. They just had to make it look as if they were lifting it, and then God would do the rest. This idea that Hishtadlut is just some sort of symbolic gesture. It seems to me that Rabbi Sachs stands on at, at a different. Uh, place on the Jewish philosophical map saying, no, no, the call to responsibility is very real. God has put us in a situation where the completion of our salvation depends upon our activity uh, uh, and God has created that and therefore the responsibility is very real. One last thing I'll say is is I think that um, his understanding of Darke Shalom in, and I've written a, a little bit about this, I'd like to publish about this at some point, but his um, his understanding of Darke Shalom, which are the collection of mitzvot, rabbinic mitzvot, that regulate the ways in which Jews and non-Jews are supposed to interact and the responsibilities that Jews have towards non-Jews. I think he had a very distinctive understanding uh, of that concept that may have been, in a sense, revolutionary, again, because it was orthodox thought 
it relies on certain rishonim and and and, and relies on a particular reading of the sugyas of the of the of the Talmudic and rabbinic literature. But I've traced what I think is a quite uh, creative path through that literature that I think he was taking. And in 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 those areas, I think you see you see some you know some something original or distinctive. Tanya, how about you? Do you want to add something to that? Yeah, I, I'm I'm going to take a, maybe a bit more of a generic or answer it in a more generic way than than Dr. Liebens than Sam. I definitely think that there's two pillars of Rabbi Sachs's thought that where he brings definitely some, in my mind, a great amount of novelty to the fields of Jewish philosophy. That's covenant and 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 I guess maybe the idea of freedom, the idea of free choice. I, they're very much interconnected, but. Um, but maybe I'll talk about that a bit later. I kind of want to, the way that I see it is that to my mind, his originality has, there's like two separate but interwoven realms. He's got the Torah commentary, which is super important. And I feel that in, in the wake of his death, a lot of people have latched on to his Torah commentary to covenant conversation, which obviously is amazing because it gets sent out every week and everything else. But I, I, one of my gripes, I guess, is that I feel that his serious, more philosophical books, uh, which really in my mind are the bedrock of his originality and also I think the root of his Torah commentary, actually, um, I think that people are not engaging enough with those. Um, and if we look at those, that's really, in my mind, where his originality lies. So I think there's two elements to Rabbi Sachs. There's the Torah commentary element, and then there's the, the philosophy stroke, and a social commentary, if you want to call it, that element, which comes through his books. And I think, generally speaking, when we talk about Bible commentary, or we talk about even Jewish philosophers, very often what they're trying to do is to reconcile the philosophy of the age with the Torah, with the ideas of the Torah, or they're trying to reconcile them, or even modern Bible, but my modern, within orthodoxy, modern Bible commentators, right? What they may try and do is to take the world of enlightenment philosophy or the world of political, moral, moral sociological philosophy, thought, whatever it happens to be, and they'll what they'll try and do is they'll try and apply it to the Torah narratives, right? But I actually think that Rabbi Sachs's chiddush lies in the fact that he does the opposite. He takes the Torah narratives and he brings them to the outside world, meaning, and even in some of his books, like for example, Future Tense, there's a lot of books that he wrote, which were books which were really written for a more universal audience. They weren't necessarily geared towards the Jewish audience. And what he does is he appropriates Bible narratives towards philosophical ends, towards sociological messages. Um, in a sense, his to the way that I see it is that his brilliance is he's a religious social commentator who uses the biblical narrative to help him narrate some kind of social commentary, right? So he'll, for example, obviously the, the ones that really it's clear from the beginning of the book that you're going to see that is not in God's name, um, in dignity of difference, in radical, then radical now he uses actually specifically the Midrashic literature as the basis of the book. But I'm saying, I think that if we're looking at it from, uh, you know, you're asking me from a more broader perspective, I think that his brilliance and his novelty, and that's what made him so brilliant, was the ability to speak to lay audiences, both Jewish and non-Jewish, to give over a dynamic, relevant message, 
moral, political, sociological message that needed that, that society needed to hear at the time, but to do it through the lens of a particular reading of a particular people of the Bible. And that to me is something that is, I think, I actually think is, is quite unprecedented. And maybe I'm wrong. Sam knows a lot more in terms of, you know, contemporary or even modern Jewish philosophers, whether people, you know, you have Buber and you have Heschel and a lot of them will bring in biblical narrative. But the way in which Rabbi Sachs does it, I think, is is, is quite novel. Um, and also, he's really speaking to the layperson. He's bringing these very deep, sometimes very complex philosophical ideas, and he is somehow able to bring them down to the level of the layperson so that any person, whether they're learned or not learned, can open up Rabbi Sachs's book and can read it and take out a very deep message. And I think, again, that was that was something very unique about Rabbi Sachs. I would say one more thing, just because um, I neglected. I, didn't, I, I can't believe I forgot. But I mean, I think it's I think it's very, very important uh, for Rabbi Sachs's work is that as Tanya says he you know he was he he was a social commentator and he was interested in political developments you know in, in the western world in particular and commenting upon them in that role he was aligned with a group of philosophers called the communitarians uh, Alistair MacIntyre yeah. um Charles Super Taylor important. and i think one of the remarkable achievements of, of rabbi sachs's work is he sees communitarian principles and commitments in the deep structure of the biblical stories and in Jewish law so that it doesn't look like as you might think what you you know the marriage between Aristotelian philosophy and the Torah that you see in Maimonides it just looks like you know this is this is a quite synthetic and and you know um, artificial alliance when you're reading Rabbi Sachs's work he does mention the communitarians in passing in, in multiple books but I think only people who really understand some of the background philosophy recognize how deeply intertwined the two become in his in his writings, his 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 biblical commentary, his understanding of Jewish practice and this communitarianism. And in a nutshell, what communitarianism is, is the idea that um, um, an individual and he did think it was important to recognize that the individual comes before the collective in many in many important respects and the rights of the individual, the dignity of the individual. But there's a, a, a profound sense in which the individual defines him or herself in terms of the communities into which they're born and the communities in which they found them, find themselves. In fact, the idea of a person in complete isolation from community is almost an absurdity because our language, our symbolic landscapes, the way we think, the way we feel is, are, are, are intimately shaped by the communal context into which we were born and educated. And it's antithetical to Judaism as well. Right. And it, the, the notion that you are born into Judaism, yeah. right, and therefore you're born with these responsibilities upon your shoulders. He thought that to, to go hand in glove with, with communitarianism. And when you recognise that our knowledge our ability to think and reason, as well as our, our, our ability to feel, uh, and of course, our ability to have a relationship with God, are deeply nested in our being the members of a community. It's those communitarian insights which shape a lot of, 
uh, Rabbi Sachs's commentary on, on Torah and, and Jewish practice. Just to add to that, if you look at the beginning of his career and the end of his career, they begin and they end with two writings on communitarianism. He begins his doctoral work, his own communal response, I think it was something community, communal responsibility or something like that. And his last book, Morality, is about the I to the we or, or the significance of the we. And the whole trajectory in every book I think you're 100% right, Sam. You see it's kind of underpinned so much of his thought. There's so much that you're saying right now. Thank you for presenting that. Let's move into some specific ideas that he mentions, as well as the controversy that Sam mentioned earlier with the dignity of difference. Because one of the most controversial ideas that I know as a layperson looking at Rabbi Sachs is his attitude towards pluralism. I want to quote something that he wrote in The Dignity of Difference, which I know has been controversial to say the least. Here's the quote. Biblical monotheism is not the idea that there is one God and therefore one truth, one faith, one way of life. On the contrary, it is the idea that unity creates diversity. In the course of history, God has spoken to mankind in many languages, through Judaism to Jews, Christianity to Christians, Islam to Muslims. Only such a God is truly transcendental, greater not only than the natural universe, but also than the spiritual universe articulated in any single faith, any specific language of human sensibility. So there are several questions I want to ask about this. The first is this, and I've had this conversation with numerous people. There was a point where he clarified this idea because of the controversy that erupted, as I understand it. And if I... But if I say anything that's historically incorrect, please correct me. This is how I understand well, it. Well, what you read was from the first edition of the book. Yeah. And right. that, that, Which that I ran out and bought before they changed there. editions. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I have heard people say that he retracted this idea. And I always heard that's not true, that he was very clear that he was clarifying it, not retracting it. So can you shed some light on this? Tanya, maybe we'll start with you. Did Rabbi Sachs disavow that which I just read or did he stand by it? Well, he had to reprint. He was, I guess, essentially forced to reprint the second edition, which was um, a softback cover. And in the second edition, he he didn't he didn't retract. In fact, I've actually got the specific because I I happen to give have given a class on this a couple of years ago and I've got the specific here. Uh, from an article that was in the JC at the time, Rabbi Sachs issued a statement saying that he heard the concerns of the Manchester rabbis that one or two sentences might be misunderstood. Rabbi Sachs said he will make the appropriate amendments in the next possible edition. Rabbi Sachs also explained that the book was intended for a non-Jewish audience and said he made a mistake to have it excerpted in the Jewish Chronicle. Okay, essentially the idea is that he did change elements of it. He did. He reworded it in order for it to be more more palatable for the, uh, say, Haredi community um, and certainly for the London Bet Din. And, and again, in order to really understand the whole controversy, one has to understand the makeup of British Jewry. And, it, and that in itself requires probably another podcast, which we don't have time for. But I, I'm going to say a couple of things the way, the way I say it. Firstly, I, I really, it's, I just want you to understand that these are ideas that were already voiced by Rabbi Sachs much, much earlier on. So, for example, in One People in 1993, and this was a book that came out, The Dignity oh, of Difference one came... People? One People... I mean, it's got a question mark in the title. I'm just joking. Yeah, but but it's in all one seriousness. I, I mean, I can write one people exactly question mark exactly, <laughs> yeah. and and but 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 what's so fascinating to me is how very often whenever I teach a course on Rabbi Sachs, 
Um, people who always seem to come with this kind of preconceived idea that Rabbi Sachs was very liberal in his thinking and was a pluralist and was, you know, um, you know, very, very left wing. And it's so not who Rabbi Sachs was. And that's what's so ironic about the whole situation is that this one controversy that happened really presented a picture of Rabbi Sachs that I think was not characteristic of who he was in many ways. However, having said that, it's also interesting to note that he already voiced these ideas. I'll just read you something very, very short that he says in in one people again, which was which was how many years he did Dignity of Difference came out, I think 2003 it was, because it was after yes, 9-11. So it was yeah. 10 years before. In that book, for example, he says. Judaism is a religion of a particular people. From this, two consequences follow. It is inclusive towards Jews and pluralist towards other faiths. Again, he continues. But the point is, I'm just reading you one sentence. There's many other examples I can bring you. He voices these ideas many, many years earlier. The only difference is that no one from the Haredi community has read his books earlier. And when Dignity of Different comes out, he's already the chief rabbi, and he's already a very big and... Um, known public voice within the Jewish community. And it happened to be that one of them read the book. It was not palatable for them. It's, it, I guess, right to a degree, you can argue, what is orthodoxy? Orthodoxy is the idea of, of you know, one correct view. And therefore, I mean, orthodoxy etymologically means, right? The right opinion, one right view. So I guess to a degree, um, what he voices in terms of the pluralism of or, or the giving a nod to the truth of other religions can't sit comfortably with an orthodox perspective. And, and this is why the controversy happens. I personally don't like to focus on this when I teach Rabbi Sachs. I think it undermines and it, pays no dividends to the greatness of his work to the novelty of who he was and actually to his who the ideas that he presents in his works um I understand why people are interested in it I understand why it's controversial um I just personally don't see a massive benefit to focusing on it that's my personal view Okay, then let me just take it to a different direction. Then let me move it in a slightly. I mean, different direction. I mean, Sam may have a totally different opinion to me, so you can ask him what he thinks. Let me switch it over to you, Sam. First of all, I'll ask you to comment on what Tanya said right now, but also, how did Rabbi Sachs balance the truth of Judaism? As you said, Tanya, orthodoxy implies a single truth. How did he balance the idea that orthodoxy represents a specific truth, the Torah represents a very specific, unique truth, and perhaps the only real truth in the world? with an openness to truths in other religions or other cultures? Well, first of all, I love what Tanya said uh, and agree, agree, agree with every, I, I would sign off on every, every last sentence of it. <laughs> okay, that's um, good. I, I, you know, Rabbi Sachs was a, a mentor to me, continues to be probably the most important influence in my religious life. Um, but he, he was more conservative, I mean, with a small C than I am on, on a whole load of issues. Yeah. Okay. And I think it's important that we don't try and shape him into an image that we want him to fit into. And that, that's part of why I really appreciate what, what Tanya says. And I think that um, responsible scholarship of Rabbi Sachs's work has to deal with uh, the fact that on many issues, he was very conservative. And yet on this issue, some of the things he says seem really, really radical, like uh, uh, the, the excerpt you read, Scott, from the first edition. 
And I think it will it will inevitably lead to multiple readings. He is not alive to uh, to arbitrate. I think it's worth pointing out um, that even on the most radical readings of what Rabbi Sachs was saying, that literally somehow the world is such that Christianity is true for the Christian and Islam is true for the Muslim and Judaism is true for the Jew. Even that view, which is very, very radical, wouldn't be totally foreign to Jewish thought because of the work of Rav Cook, right? And um, Mark Shapiro pointed out in, in an early review of The Dignity of Difference, uh, he didn't like the book very much. He didn't, he wasn't particularly right. supportive of it and, and whatever. If, but in fact, he said, you know, but if you think this is radical, it's not, it's not all that different to things you may hear from, from other admittedly radical figures, but radical, uh, um, though he was, Rabbi Cook continues to be an, you know, a major voice in, in, in what we might call broadly the orthodox camp. You know, certainly controversial amongst Haredim, but not, you know, not beyond the pale. And and Rabbi Cook does say things that sound like that. And it's related to a very esoteric mysticism in which, uh, you know, all things somehow are true. You know, there's a statement where Rabbi Cook says, Elu elu these and these are the words of the living God applies even to the words of a rashagamor, even to the words of a completely wicked person, because it's some very esoteric mystical doctrine. So I'm sure there will be interpretations of Rabbi Sachs as we go forward that try to uh, align his comments on uh, um, interreligious pluralism uh, on a, in a more Cookian vein. I happen to think, and I have a much more conservative reading of Rabbi Sachs's pluralism, uh, I happen to think that it's it's much more related to this communitarianism of which I spoke earlier, that um, we can only access reality through the conceptual schemes that we have, like language. You can't think without a language, for example. He speaks about language many, many times. Exactly, and, and some sort of comparison between language and faith. And it's simply not possible to try to describe the world from outside of a linguistic perspective because you need a language. And I think what this means is you, you can feel absolutely certain that Judaism is true, that the things it's saying are true and they bind us. But you don't need to feel threatened by the authentic experiences of God that a Muslim or a Christian or a Hindu might have because um, they are looking at the very same world as us, but through a different language. And sometimes some parts of their languages may not be translatable, right? So they're, they're, they're incommensurate. He did think that Chochmah, he makes this big distinction between Torah and Chochmah, wisdom and Torah. And the sages talk about how Chochmah is universal. I would think about Chochmah as being those truths that we can state in one language, but we can translate into another. And those those sorts of insights should be universal and should, you know, and and uh, and we can share. But then there's the residue, the wisdom that a particular language or culture might be able to express in its own language, but which you can't translate into the language of another. And he thought that that was what Torah is. And Torah is the truth that we inherit, whereas Chochmah is the, Chochmah is the truth that we can discover and 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 relate to others. Um, and I actually think that's a long way from the radicalism of Rav Cook. 
Uh, it actually allows you to say, you know, orthodoxy is absolutely 100% literally true, but don't think that all of its truths could be translated to another language. And even though, of course, to the extent that Islam and Christianity are saying things which A, can be translated and B, um, um, contradict the truths that Judaism communicate, well, we reject those things. And Rabbi Sachs was very clear about rejecting certain things. For instance, he was saying, you know, um, he, he would say the thought that the world has been saved already is a thought that we shouldn't be, we shouldn't accept. Right. Well, that's that's a very robust denial of a central Christian teaching. Right. That the Messiah has already come. So there were things he was he was willing to reject. But I think his idea is to the you know, to the extent that there may be truths in other religions which can't be translated out of those religions, you shouldn't think in terms of them contradicting us. They're looking at reality from a different linguistic frame and maybe having very legitimate religious experiences as a consequence of it. Judaism doesn't command us to convert the Muslim or the Christian. And on the contrary, we should, you know, the fact that Judaism doesn't do that must mean somehow that there is a space for God to have a relationship with these people through their own cultures and languages. And I think that, that, and I say this with all due respect, because I think that was Rabbi Sachs's view, I think he got carried away with his own beautiful poetic rhetoric when he says, oh, just like God speaks to the Jews the language of Judaism, he speaks to the Christians in the language of Christianity and the Muslims. And in the context, you can understand what he meant, given the background I've just given you. But it was apt to be misunderstood. And I, I actually, and I think other Sachs scholars will disagree with me, I think he was right to reword it because I think that he led himself to, to misunderstandings. I just want to also push back on the context, push back on Sam for a minute and then contextualize. Um, I, I, I have heard Sam's reading of it before. I don't 100% agree with everything Sam says. I said to you one of the main themes, I think, Rabbi Sachs, or main novelties is the idea of covenant. But it's not just the idea that he brings, he's a covenantal thing in many, many ways, right? If you just look at the titles of the Covenant Conversation Crisis and Covenant, Covenant really is the center, the principle that guides most of his writings, a lot of his books. But I think it's actually much more than that. I think that he doesn't just want us to use Covenant as a means to, you know, understanding our role in this world and how we need to act in this world. I actually think he wants us to think in the guise of Covenant. What do I mean by that? So here I'm bringing in the idea of the left and the right-hand side of the brain. The, the very kind of Aristotelian thinking is very much about the idea of the left-hand side. It's very logical. Everything has to be placed into logical categories, right? And everything is very much the left-hand side of the brain, which is everything can needs to be integrated and needs to be defined, whereas covenant is much more relational. It's much more dialogical. Um, and in a sense, it's this idea of coexistence. The right and the left-hand side can coexist. You can have ways of relating to the world, maybe the ways of chokhmah. I think it also kind of goes in. And in a very early essay of his, um, Fundamentalism, he really speaks about this idea of biblical criticism. He And he kind of unpacks the whole idea. And in the end, he, he totally reframes it. And he speaks about the idea of Torah as basically covenantal that we have to read the Torah in a covenantal way. And I think that guides all of his thoughts. So to go back for a minute to, to what Sam's saying, I think that when he writes the book, 
what he's essentially trying to do there, the agenda, and this is to contextualize it, the agenda is he's writing on the hills of 9-11. What's happened in 9-11? What's happened is that religion has become fundamentalized. And fundamentalism is essentially the idea that I believe my religion to possess the absolute and ultimate universal truth. The danger of that is what happens, what happens on 9-11. And what Rabbi Sachs wants to do as the voice of a guiding religious leader is to present religion that can coexist, that, that different religions can coexist together without having um, or without being led down the path of fundamentalism. And in order to do that, what, and again, I, I still think he believed in what he said. I, don't, I think the retraction wasn't that he turned around and said, it's not true what I said. I think the retraction was to kind of, it was political. Let, let's be let's be honest. It was a political move that he had to do. I don't believe he was a pluralist. I agree with Sam on that. I don't believe he was a radical. Definitely not a radical pluralist. Maybe in you know you can bring in Avi Sagi's definition of weak and strong yeah, what, pluralism. What type of pluralism do you... I think he he was a weak pluralist for sure. And yeah. I, I I'm not going to try and, and 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 unpack what that means exactly now. But I do think that he is looking at the dilemma not in a not in the academic logical way that we're looking at it right I think he's looking at it through what I think was the novelty of his thought through this more covenantal lens of how do we how can the left and the right hand brain coexist but not necessarily have to integrate and I think his question was how can different religions with different thought systems and different truths that each of them believe coexist in a way that allows for each to have their space and allows for each to have their truth and yet not have to lead down the path of fundamentalism and not have to lead down the path of total reconciliation. And in my mind, what he does by saying this is, and again, it, it kind of does jive with, with what Sam said to a degree, um, but I think that what he what he does is to, to essentially say that each religion, and, and this goes back to his idea of covenant, God has creates the world, the covenant of Noah begins the world, that's a universal covenant. There is room for a universal God, for a God that speaks to every single different person and creates a relationship with every single different person. And within that umbrella, there is therefore room for each of those people or nations or religions to have a specific covenant with their God. That is also true. That covenant is also mm -hmm. true. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mm -hmm. take away from the truth of our covenant with God doesn't take away from truth. Now, as you said, Sam, there's going to be some claims that are going to contradict the claims of other religions. And those are claims that we have to grapple with, Rabbi Sachs says, but it doesn't mean that I have to, it doesn't mean I have to negate the truth of your religion by saying that my religion is true. And I think that's really where he was going. And I think it's a very complex issue that requires us to think about the dilemma differently. And in my mind, what the when the Haredi rabbis read the book, they were thinking very much left-hand brain. And I think that Rabbi Sachs, when he wrote the book, was thinking very much right right hand brain and i think that's where the controversy lies and that's where the difficulty lies okay i i want to continue this particular conversation but we don't have that much time so i yeah. want to make sure we get to some of the other issues so i know there's a lot more to say about this particular point just one sentence about what sam said in particular about in quoting professor mark shapiro that it's very much a cookie in viewpoint i think people don't realize in my opinion at least that it's also a rough salvation viewpoint rough salvation in the halachic mind describes reality as being refracted through multicolored glass and frankly in my last episode i talked about his essay confrontation about interfaith and 
encounters. And there he wasn't talking, obviously he was speaking to a Jewish audience, but he wasn't saying, he's very clear, he wasn't saying merely that this is wrong for Jews. He's saying it's wrong for all religions because they speak yeah, because, different languages. Because they're radically incommensurate. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. except and, and, and Rabbi that, Sachs's conclusions, I think, were were very different from Rabbi Sachs. I'm sure, but I think, the philosophical I think underpinnings, a, I think, are similar. Yeah, I think I, I think I agree. I think that I think there is a similarity of underpinning, but I agree with Tanya that the the, the, the conclusions derived, you know, are, are really quite different, because Rabbi Sachs thought there was room for a kind of meaningful a dialogue, uh, which Rabbi which Russell Levitic didn't. On the other hand, it does seem to me that a, a major part of Rabbi Sachs's platform is look, the first thing we have to do is to recognize no one can describe the world from outside of a particular language or, or, or cultural context. So, so the Muslims shouldn't expect that I should be able to just drop my Judaism. And, and, and so too, the Jews shouldn't expect that the Muslims should be able to do that. And if we can, and that, that, would, that would give rise to a certain amount of, of uh, intellectual humility that could yeah. allow for, for, for coexistence. But I think Tanya's right to point out perhaps a major difference between Russell Levachik and Rabbi Sachs is Rabbi Sachs thinks that um, these different communities to which we belong, which shape the way we think and do create perhaps obstacles of translation that, that, that you see in Rabbi Soloveitchik. For Rabbi Sachs, these all take place against the background of a universal covenant with Noah that you don't see kind of emphasized as much. Uh, with Very much that, so. With Rabbi Soloveitchik doesn't Soloveitchik. discuss that as part of his philosophical underpinnings. I agree exactly. completely. Okay, let's go on to something you mentioned, Tanya. You talked about Rabbi Sachs's early encounters with biblical criticism, and I'm wondering, how did Rabbi Sachs publicly or privately confront academic approaches to the Bible and what those approaches mean for people who believe in the Torah, for people of faith? So I'll, I'll just say something short, and then I'll leave uh, Sam to maybe expand on it. Um, I personally don't think that in his latest book, I, as far as I'm aware, he doesn't really engage with that issue very much at all um the there is i think one other place he does i can't remember where it was but i know for sure that i came across so when rabbi Sachs passed away a good friend of mine gave me a whole lo load of the leila journals which were published by at the time jews college and rabbi Sachs was the editor for many years before he became um the chief rabbi and there you'll find a lot of his very early essays one thing i say about rabbi Sachs, which is really I think quite incredible is that from his very, very early essays, you already see the seeds of all his later thoughts, mm -hmm. meaning there's something about Rabbi Sachs that is extremely consistent. There's a consistency in his thought that, that he really follows a certain path, a certain way of thinking, certain principles, certain um, ideas, and they you see them consistently throughout his thought. He develops them massively. You see the seeds of them much earlier on, and then you see how he develops them and also how he applies them to, to the development of society as a whole. But they're very early on. The one thing I'd say that, does, that he speaks about earlier on that he doesn't really engage in later is the idea of biblical criticism, maybe because it was at the time when he was writing in the 19, mid 1980s, early 1990s, it was more of a burning issue then than it is now, perhaps, I don't know. Um, or maybe it was just something he didn't think was relevant for later on. Um, but there's a very early essay in Leila, which he writes in 1989, which he entitles Fundamentalism Reconsidered. I think that's what it's called. And he there he actually engages in a much more academic, it's like very difficult, it's actually probably one of his most difficult essays. Um, and he engages there seriously with 
in kind of a defense, a very strong defense against source criticism um, and against the documentary hypothesis and all the other critical theories. And he really makes an argument. I personally don't think it's a, I think there's a lot of apologetics in it, in my personal opinion. But um, one thing that he says at the end, and this is what I found super interesting, is that he, right at the end, after he's defended it, after he's defended what he calls fundamentalism, right? He calls his position fundamentalist, which is very interesting. Um, right at the end, he then speaks and he essentially, he essentially turns around and he says that there's kind of no point even having this discussion because the academic way of reading the Torah is not the same way as the traditional way of reading the Torah. Essentially, he's already bringing in what I call his right and left-hand way of looking, like right-hand brain and left-hand brain way of looking at reality. He doesn't use that. I see uh, the that, parallelism there. Yeah. yeah, but he essentially says that they are searching for verifiability. They want to verify and universalize, and they want to logically be able to understand the text. And he says that's chokhmah, exactly the categories that Sam brought in. He says, but we read Torah covenantally. And to read the Torah covenantally means you're reading the Torah as Torah. You're not reading it as Chokhmah the way they are. And he, he writes so beautifully at the end of it. And his argument is that when we read the Torah, we read it in a community. So that goes in with his communitarianism. We read it as a text given and a, test, and a text received in tradition with the traditional commentaries within it. And he essentially, it beautifully, I mean, I've got it here somewhere, but I can, if you want, I can read you. He, he beautifully says that they're just two different ways of approaching the same text, but the way that we approach it, it doesn't matter whether or not, whether or not to a degree, there's a tr truity in what they're saying because we're reading the text in a totally different way. And in that sense, I think he closes it. I don't think he feels a need to engage with it again, which he really do doesn't actually, as far as I'm aware. Sam, do you want to add something to that? Yeah, well, I have to confess, I hadn't read this uh, article until Tanya sent it to me. Uh, and I, re I really yeah. enjoyed it. Thank you, Tanya. His pieces in Leila are, are, are harder to get your hands on. They're, you yeah. know, they're, they're not widely accessible. It's a journal that's out of print. I don't think it was ever put online in the way that some uh, other journals have been. Um, um, it's a great it's a great piece. And, and actually, what's interesting is his strategy dealing with biblical source criticism from an orthodox point of view is later echoed and not perhaps knowingly by James Kugel uh, in mm -hmm. How to Read the Bible and uh, by Alvin Plantinga in Warranted Christian Belief, a Christian philosopher. And the basic, the basic uh, response is this, look, biblical scholars for generations have been saying that they have evidence of multiple authorship. And some of this evidence is very compelling. But it really is only compelling. And even James Kugel, uh, you know, a respected scholar in the field, uh, admits the evidence really is only compelling against a certain ideological background, the number of assumptions that really come from Spinoza. Now, one of the, the, the assumptions is the text is a human text. And if you assume the text is a human text, then you find all of this evidence for multiple authorship. But that's an illegitimate assumption if, what you're trying to prove is that it wasn't a divine text, right? Sure, if you assume that it's a human a product of human labor, then you're going to find evidence that points to this or evidence that points to that. If you, if you start, 
if you start the process making a different set of assumptions, the text is going to look very different to you. And uh, Kugel says that orthodox readers of the text, because he is a practicing orthodox Jew himself, when they look at the text, they come with a different set of assumptions. And that's legitimate. You know, different sciences have their different founding assumptions. And Plantinga, you know, Plantinga makes a very similar point. He says, you know, sure, if you, you know, if you assume certain things to begin with, then source uh, the, the documentary hypothesis or the, the, the or newer versions of the documentary hypothesis can be very compelling. If you come to the same text with a different set of assumptions, much less compelling. And I think Rabbi Sachs just found that, you know, he, he came to that view independently, actually, before both of these thinkers yeah, uh, definitely before. published what they said, found that answer compelling. And I think I agree with Tanya. It just shut it shut the issue for him. I admit, Tanya, I think I agree with you. A, a lot of people, especially in academic Jewish studies, are going to say, no, this is just kind of too quick. And it's a, it's has the hallmarks of Jewish apologetics. Personally, I, I'm pretty convinced by it. I don't, I don't feel... I have to add, Sam, I re- once read James Kugel, an interview on the Torah.com with James Kugel. And one of the things he says, and it always stayed in my head, maybe because my husband's a surgeon, I don't know, but the image always stayed in my head. He said... So they asked him, how do you reconcile being an Orthodox Jew and engaging and writing about, you know, the documentary hypothesis and everything else? And he he said there's two ways of coming, of looking at the Torah text. He says one is the academic way, which is like, and he gives the analogy of a surgeon standing over a body about to open it up and dissect it. He says the, the, the scholars, the biblical scholars, they're standing over the text and they are trying to dissect it, to find the source, to find, to unpack it, to un- but the text is passive. It's passive. It can't do anything. It's almost half dead, right? Whereas he says, what's, what's learning Torah Alishma? What's, you know, what's, um, he called it, I uh, can't remember the word he uses, but what's learning Torah, right? He says, it's, it's that you're sitting, that the text right is above you and you're sitting at its feet trying to drink like he uses beautiful language like trying to drink from the text of the Torah meaning the Torah is 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 your guide it's your principle it's what you're looking up towards and you're drinking the juices of the Torah and it's alive and I think that that it was that that analogy always in my head I always imagine that analogy because I think that it's just two different ways of approaching the Torah and you see it in Rabbi Sachs when he writes in that in that article and I think Rabbi Sachs would just say that the the surgical way of looking at this text especially if you're bringing all of these contentious assumptions about naturalism about the non-existence of God about the humanity of every text it sanitizes Torah and it's no longer Torah. And to, and to learn Torah is just, just like that beautiful image you quote from Kugel. It, it's to sit as a member of a community, Correct. hearing the word of God through a text. And, and, and that's something that, that uh, you know, an academic biblical scholar, a critical scholar is, is, is unable to do. Also, because I think Torah is not a genre, it's a genre in and of itself. And I think that's mm. what Rabbi Sachs was trying to get to. Like, you look, you take a book and you say, what genre is this book? Is it historical? Is it scientific? Is it this? Is it that? And Torah is none of those things, but it's all of those things. And that, I think that's, that's what Rabbi Sachs was really trying. It's covenantal. That's the word he keeps coming back to. It's, it's dialogical and not just between two people that have a chavruta, but between generations that pass, generations that are going to be. And, and I think there's something so beautiful about that imagery but again that won't necessarily work for your typical biblical 
scholar because they'll say yeah that's very nice and poetic but it's not particularly academic or logical you know yes but on the other hand someone like james kugel will say there's a difference between how to read the bible versus how to learn torah and that's that's sort of what you're saying right now and plantinga will say it's legitimate if you if you antecedently committed to theism uh to bring a different set of assumptions to the text and that's what rabbi Sachs says we always we always exist within the condition and the community to which we are born into and the language that we speak. So that makes total sense in his mind. Okay, we have very little time left, but I want to make sure I get to at least one more question. One of Rabbi Sachs's central concerns was balancing the biblical text and biblical religion with the demands of morality, with the demands and findings of science. He wrote books about that. He wrote the book Morality, he wrote The Great Partnership, that dealt with these explicitly. Sam, could you tell us just briefly some some of the basic ways that Rabbi Sachs was able to confront challenges to Torah Judaism that come from without, from our sense of morality, from the findings of science, for example? Sure. I, in fact, I relate to the findings of science and to the and to the finding of, of ethics, if I can. And, I'll, and, and even having broadened it uh, thusly, I'll try to make my comments brief. The issue of science, that there's a kind of slogan that the Great Partnership, his book, is an, is an effort to unpack. And the, the slogan goes something like this. Science is the discipline of taking things apart so as to see how they work. Religion is the discipline of putting things together to see what they mean. And um, it's related to Stephen Jay Gould's notion of these independent magisteria, that, that, that science does one thing, religion does another. And if you look at the if you look at these two disciplines in that way, then when you come across things which look like they're in conflict or look like they contradict, it's often just a misunderstanding because actually these are two different disciplines doing different things. Uh, and then when you understand what what the disciplines are doing, you can you can actually very often diffuse what looks like uh, a tension or, or or a contradiction. Personally, I think it's true what he says, but I think there's more to say uh, than just that. I'll, I'll come back to this in a second. Uh, when dealing with with ethics, his teacher, one of his great religious role models, was Rav Nachum Rabinovich, who was who was known in Israel as the Rosh Hashiva of of, um, of the Yeshiva of Birkat Moshe in Malia Dumim. Uh, but before then, of course, he was the head of Jews College for many years and was was a major influence, continuing influence in Rabbi Sachs's life, Rabbi. Rabinovich wrote a very important uh, article in the Eidad Journal about slavery, in which he argues that the Torah was accommodationist. The Torah recognized that slavery wasn't something that would be able to be abolished overnight because of the way that culture and economy were at that time calibrated. But but a sensitive eye or a sensitive ear can see from the original texts that there was always a trajectory towards abolishment. that's not an easy argument to make because there are commandments like not to free your slave. And you're well, hold on a second. But Rav, Rav Rabinovich deals with these quite masterfully in, in that Ada article. And I think when it comes to the ethics, I think that's that's Rabbi Sachs follows in the footsteps of his teacher there, which is to say that, no, the Torah doesn't have to change in order to accommodate the ethics of the age. But sometimes our sensitivity to what the real message of Torah is as certain things become revealed to us socially, you know, the evils of slavery or misogyny or, or racism, we need to go back to the Torah and listen with a more attentive ear and we'll very often find 
uh, uh, that actually the message of the Torah was was telling us certain things all along in his covenant and conversations. I think Rabbi Sachs is is a, is a master of hearing what sound like very contemporary ethical uh, um, teachings in the ancient strata of, 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 of the Jewish stories. That isn't to say that anything goes. There are times at which Rabbi Sachs thought it was very important to recognize that, no, there is a central ethical teaching here in the Bible that that conflicts with uh, moral ethical mores. And that, you know, so there's there's an interesting discussion to be had about how to know what sort of hermeneutic is appropriate, a hermeneutic of finding the new ethic in the ancient texts or seeing the ancient texts as a, as a countercultural voice. Uh, and, and it would require another podcast to figure out exactly, you know, what Rabbi Sachs's approach to these very dip- difficult questions are. But the final thing I want to say, where I think it, is, it goes much deeper than Rabbi Sachs's slogan in The Great Partnership, and uh, I, I think could bear more fruits, is this, this notion that, that Tanya pointed to earlier with, with uh, um, her appeal to the concept of a genre. Rabbi Sachs says that if you want to figure out where the conflict, you know, to use a, a line from, again, the, the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga, where the conflict really lies. If you want to understand where the conflict really lies, you need to know what genre is Torah. Because if, or, or, or which genres uh, does the Torah, you know, um, include? Because if you relate to the book of Genesis, Sefer Bereshit, as a natural history, if that's the genre to which it belongs, then it's in direct conflict with the findings of contemporary cosmology and biology. But if you think it belongs to a different genre entirely, that doesn't mean it's not true. Where did God want us to put this book that he wrote on the bookshelf? Did he want us to put it next to the origin of species? Did he want us to put it next to Tolstoy's War and Peace? Like where on the bookshelf does it go? Sure, God wrote a book. But only if you know what genre of book was it, can you start to arbitrate where does it conflict with uh, uh, what we know from the sciences? I learn a lot about the world through reading fiction, right? Uh, fiction isn't just falsehood. That's the wrong way of understanding. You know? so, so that's a question that Rabbi Sachs asks. Uh, and, and I think that being aware of that question, what genre is the Torah, even before we answer it, it helps us to see that a lot of what might be conflicts between Torah and ethics, between Torah and science, between Torah and history, might not be. We have to answer this question first. What genre is the Torah? I think it's very telling that the Torah calls itself a shira, either a song or a poem, which is saying it is not what it looks like on the surface. The genre is not what we might think it is. Tanya, do you have anything to add to what Sam just said right now? Yeah, I think I agree with Sam 100%. I think it kind of harks back to what I was saying at the beginning. One of the things I love about The Great Partnership is like, generally speaking, when you have books that try to reconcile or to, I don't know, somehow integrate Torah and science or try and answer the challenging questions, they're always doing it from the perspective of where can we see in the Torah that the big bang happens or where's Darwin's theory how does it fit in and what Rabbi Sachs does is is essentially the idea that he he turns around he says it doesn't need to fit in and it doesn't need to reconcile because and he brings in this left and right hand theory of the brain um which I think is 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 a beautiful way of understanding and to my mind even that notion that he says you know the Torah begins 
um, we, we read it from the right to the left. And when the Greeks translated it, they translated it and, meant, and moved it from the left to the right. And he said it, it can't, it doesn't translate well because it is the genre of the right-hand side brain thinking, which is dialogical and covenantal and is about meaning and it's about um, relationship and it's not left-hand thinking which is it's the Greek thinking which is scientific which is logical which is about placing things into abstract theories and abstract boxes and when we try to translate the Torah in both a metaphorical way and in a literal way what we're trying to do is to combine the left and the right hand brain and we know that that can't, they can't be combined they work side by side they work so we together but both. each we need them both and they each have their own distinct role to play and i think that was the key rabbi Sachs came along and he says let's not negate the role of science and its importance and everything it's given us and at the same time let's not shy away from the fact that the Torah isn't science, right? And I think that, but it doesn't, but it does, again, but it doesn't take away from the importance that science, the role that science plays. And I think generally speaking- And, and speaks, the Torah is the, essential. If we, if we only had the scientific brain, society will fragment correct. which is one of the things and, and, and again sam happening. it reminds me we never really spoke about this because we didn't i don't think we got to this idea of what rabbi Sachs think about talking about interfaith but what about intrafaith right what does he think about the different components within judaism and i think rabbi Sachs was deeply deeply influenced by rav soloveitchik there were things he very much disagreed with rav soloveitchik about but there was definitely his overall thinking was a great influence on him and one of the things i will say is that i think Rabbi Sachs very often goes back to the idea of Brit Goral and Brit Yehud, right? And the de covenant, de co the covenant of fate and the covenant of destiny, and 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 that very much. In called the way fake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. In Kodo Didofek, in Fate and Destiny. And that very much defines the way, in my mind, he looks at intrafaith Judaism, which again is probably for another podcast. But one thing I think he also always, he, he doesn't necessarily mention explicitly, but I think it's always underlies his thought implicitly is the idea of Adam 1 and Adam 2, you know, and you think about Adam 1, Adam 1 is the scientist, Adam 1 is the data, Adam 1 is about um, a majestic work community where you're seeing the other as a means to an end, and that's very much the scientist, whereas Adam 2, he's the quintessential philosopher, he's the person that asks the why, and it very much to me parallels the, what Rabbi Sachs does in his book, The Great Partnership, where you have science that plays the role of asking the how question, exactly how Rav Soloveitchik says, and 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 the right hand side of the brain, which is faith, which is religion, which asks the why question, not the what or the how, but the why. And I think one gives meaning and one gives serves a purpose. One's about a covenantal community and one's about a, a majestic work community. And we need both, but they're not meant to necessarily, as Rabbi Rav Soloveitchik says, they, we oscillate between the two, but then mm -hmm. we're not meant to merge them. They're not mm -hmm. meant to be merged. And they cannot be merged. They're not, they, they cannot be merged, exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's what I think. I think Rabbi Sachs is saying to us, and I think this was the chiddush of the Great Partnership, which many other books before then had kind of tried to answer, but hadn't done in my mind adequately, is to say actually they don't need to be reconciled. And I think that really, to me, to my mind, is the the, the greatness of of his impact is, I guess, the novelty he brings to the question of science and um, and religion. We're ending on novelty. We started with novelty. Yes. Ending on novelty and starting on novelty. Well, I have to say, rarely have I had a podcast, which itself seems to sprout so many future podcasts as this one. <laughs> There's so much more that we could discuss. This was really, really interesting. I thank both of you. Rabbi Dr. Sam Liebens, Dr. Tanya White, thank you for joining me today. Thank, thank you, you so very much. much. Thank you.
Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in Orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest Orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.